0: So hello and welcome to our latest Patient Safety Podcast. My name is Tracy Herlihy and I'm Head of Patient Safety Incident Response Policy within the National Patient Safety Team at NHS England. So I lead on all things Patient Safety Incident Response Framework or PSERF for short. PSERF was published in August 2022 and by autumn 2023 will we'll replace the Serious Incident Framework Before then, organisations will be working through various preparation phases before creating a patient safety incident response policy and plan that, once agreed, will enable organisations to transition to PSERF. So today we're going to be talking about an important part of um, PSERF preparation, and this is all around um, comms, so creating stakeholder lists, planning engagement and so on. Really happy to have with me today, Vicky Ainsworth, who led on a large scale communications around electronic patient records at Manchester University NHS Foundation Trust. And she's going to be building, bringing in her experience on leading that um, to help us out here in the context of PSERF. Really pleased also to have with us today, Stu Kale. Um, So Stu, did you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your role?
1: Hi, yeah. Um, so my name's is Stu Cale and I'm a programme development lead um, at Health Innovation Manchester. So I'm working in the Greater Manchester system um, and I, I lead on the system safety work stream um, for, help for Health Innovation Manchester.
0: Um, so just um, starting with you, Vicky, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role?
2: Sure, thank you. Thanks for having me, uh, yes. So um, as Tracy said, um, I currently lead on the Hive electronic patient record system um, communications at MFT. Um, my role is part of the wider um, group communications team um, of which we took on the um, Hive BPI program as a big change program that needed dedicated communications support. Um, And that role really began when we first um... Took on our um Epic um provider for our electronic patient record in May 2020. So it's been a long-term project as well. Which is um we launched our patient record in September of this year, um and it's still ongoing now. We're in our um post go live and stabilization phase. So it really is a large-scale transformation. We have around thirty thousand staff, um and it's it's really embedding that change across the trust for an ongoing period of transformation.
0: Great so sounds although it's kind of in a different area it sounds very relevant your experience very relevant for kind of yeah. um, PSERF and kind of what we're trying to change here because it's why it is quite a wide scale um, change across organizations and how we improve following patient safety incidents so just kind of um, interested in your thoughts then. For those who, so those who are leading on PSERF, um implementation within their organizations, where should they start, I guess, when it comes to comms?
2: So, yeah, I think this really different ways to approach it of whether you take it on as a part of your program and you have um, an integrated comms person within that program to take this forward or if it's part of your roles in general in your program's team. Um, for the high VPI, we brought in group communications to ensure that um, at a group level at a trust level we could have that oversight of um, key messages and a standardization of approach especially for um, a trust like um, MFT where we've got 10 hospital sites we know that there's we need standardization so it's really thinking from an early stage of the program um, having that strong link in and thought process around comms and how it how it aligns with the program plan. Um, from a comms perspective and being a comms professional, it's really important for us to have a um, a really um, detailed and agreed programme plan for us to work from to develop a comms strategy and a comms plan. Um, they really have to align to the, the peaks and troughs of activity within the programme plan. So when you're thinking about it from the beginning, it's really for... Um, the program team to assess where they feel that they need this comes. Um, this comes support and how much dedicated time. There is I think thinking about resource from the beginning is really important. Um, and for us when we started on this once once we had epic on board, one of the first things that we did was have an internal workshop with program team leads, the the group comms team just to really see a map across where we thought those activities and those stakeholder communications need would be over the course of the program. And that way you could start from quite an early stage to develop a timeline, um, an overarching comms strategy that really aligned and really sat next to that program plan. Um, So I think the the big takeaway is that really early for thought around comms and just making sure that it's fully embedded within the program team and it's it's put on the as high of the agenda as anything else really because Um, I think quite a lot of times like where in previous experience comms does sometimes come as a bit of an afterthought. There's a lot of work done and then there's the realization it needs to be communicated. But the more it can be integrated right at the beginning means that you can follow along and see where those activities are going to need more resource, more content, more um, more engagement on the ground. And I just think that having a bit of foresight right at the beginning, a couple of workshops, something to really build uh, an early strategy and key messages that can follow you through the course of your program can really help.
0: Yeah, no, I think that 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 all kind of sounds really useful. I, I think it's one of what we recognize this when we first put together kind of the PCF prep guide, um, you know, it's to guide organizations over the next 12 months. And in that very first stage, it was trying to think about comms and I guess trying to put that right at the very, the very beginning. Um, just when you were talking, there were a couple of things that I picked up about that I was going to ask about. So, I guess in your organization there was a realization that this needed engagement with the, you know, that we we were gonna I guess it needed engagement from that central comms team. How so for those who may not have engaged with the central comms team yet, what do you have any tips for how to get it on the radar um, of those of that team and to kind of make it, I guess, a prior kind of incorporated within their priorities?
2: Yeah, I think, I think from the beginning, especially for the high VPR program, um, there was quite a strong governance. Structure that fed up to program boards to exact board levels to strategy boards that meant that it was always kind of on the agenda as well. So knowing that from our level, just going back a little bit that our um, Our director, Sarah Booth, who led this from the beginning in terms of from a director point of view, it was on their radar. And I think when there's something like this, like with PSERC, you'd hope that it is on board directors um, levels of um, foresight so that they can see that it's coming up. And I think that's where you could see across the board that they might need to invest more into the into the communications Um, and I think as well from our point of view and from our comms team we're very much we were already involved in things like um, the transformation teams projects and this in terms of it being not just a system change but being transformation led as well meant that it was often on the communications radar anyway and I'd think I'd always just say to be open and where you think you might need extra support do approach your comms teams, approach your comms directors, um, and they can then be pulling their experience from anything else that they've worked on. I think that, um, it's great to have there's always those two types of communications where it's kind of like a group like communications and a program communications because you're always going to need that strong like PMO team who can lead on the detailed comms such as um, I guess like board papers and board meetings, um, the kind of things that you need to be doing on a day to day basis to keep um, execs updated and to run um, the, the program plans themselves, which always generate comms. But then you have to think about the The wider levels of stakeholders that you're going to need to approach and get on board and I think that's just where if you've got any experience comms teams or comms activity that's already taken place I'd just say to be as open as you can and have those conversations with your comms teams and see if you can have any of that support because I think even from my perspective where my communications background is programme communications, its strategy communications, we still needed to draw on the wider communications team for press and media support for um, digital support. There's always different areas where I think as much as you can from the beginning, let your comms team know that this is happening. You can probably then bring them in at the key points, because I think it's going to be different for everyone, depending on your resources, what you need when um, and, and when's best to bring in some wider team support. But I think with a bit of guidance, a lot of teams can generate their own comms plans and it's just a way of you can go to your comms teams then to get things either um, some inputs get some sign off of how you would usually do it from a group comms perspective so i think it probably will be a little bit different depending on the different organizations
0: yeah, and I, I think one of the things you were mentioning um, was that it was quite useful early on to have that awareness at kind of board level um, and the kind of senior director level. And that was one of the questions I was going to ask around do you have any tips for um, organizations to engage specifically with their boards? I guess with PSERF, um, there is a, a ch- it is asking for this change in how kind of boards oversee kind of how we learn and improve following patient safety incidents. So it's it, they're a key stakeholder do you have any tips for getting them on board, getting boards on board
2: yeah I think um, (laughs) it was we were always trying to get them involved from the start and I think whether something as important as this it was both ways of inviting those members to our meetings but also making sure we had a place on their agenda as well um we were ensuring that key um key decisions went to board of directors for approval Um, and that also then included having team briefs and briefings that went up on a monthly basis to those directors so that they could see the progression and see where there might be um, asks or um, upcoming um, activities that they need to be aware of and I think we also continued throughout the process to do Weekly updates and utilize channels that were already going there. So if there were papers going up to directors, making sure that we had a position on those to feed in. Um, I know that we also fed into um, like our weekly NED briefings. So they're the the non-exec director, sorry, meetings and briefings that went on. And then also with wider um, levels of like our Council of Governors, just making sure that we had schedules updated that were in like the business cycle of what they were um, producing. And so that they were also um, updated on a regular occurrence. I think the program itself had a really strong governance structure, where um, people like um, chief execs of the hospitals, leadership teams, um, exec directors were um, fully on board with program delivery plans from an early stage because they were attending monthly hive program boards. Um, we were then going to program boards or oh, um, sorry board meetings that they had to make sure that both sides, we were um we were attending on both sides. We were inviting, but also we were in being invited to update as well um, and also having representation where needed for board members to come to key areas. Uh, operational steering groups. Um, where things are affecting patients, making sure that medical directors are involved. Um, And we've had such strong advocacy and involvement from exec directors for Hive that I think bringing them on as early as possible and making sure they're getting those briefings and seeing where their input's really going to be valued means that they'll be involved as you go along and further down the line. And um, even now we have, I think we currently have like weekly um, stabilisation groups and we have exec directors come to that to, to offer their insight and to support on getting things past the line so I think it's just again it's that early briefings and making sure that we're on the agenda where possible.
0: Yeah it sounds like um, a bit of a kind of a two-way street it's important Mm. to kind of um, you know feed stuff into your board and make sure that information is getting on their agenda but also inviting them into your work where appropriate yeah.
2: Yeah exactly and I think it just means that as well it's like where are comms Where we can support from a comms perspective um, is helping to shape those messages and making sure that we're aware of the channels and where we can get get into these meetings. But very much so making sure that there's some ownership from the programme level and programme directors to make sure that they're sending the monthly um, or the weekly or monthly bespoke kind of chief exec briefings, exec briefings, so that it really shows that um, that willingness to um, update key levels of stakeholders within the organization and externally as well.
0: Yeah and that kind of um, it, I was just reflecting on how we've gone about some of the comms nationally um, for serve, mm. and that's where our comms team has been really helpful because they're aware of the channels out there and how NHS England already kind of reaches different groups so we've been able to tap into those channels rather than trying to you know, kind of make up our own our own way, and 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 those who are receiving the communications already, you know, are aware of kind of these bulletins coming their way, and it's kind of on their radar. Um, so that, that we found that quite helpful actually um, working with our comms team nationally around that. Um, another question that I came, that I was thinking about um, when based on what you were talking about a little earlier on um, about kind of different organisations and MFT um, seems like quite a large organisation. But of course, PSERF is kind of across all of um, the NHS in England, Um, so there will be some that are quite small organizations. Um, Do you have any kind of thoughts on or tips for those who may be in a much smaller organization where resources may be a lot less?
2: Yeah, um I guess it's that's where I'd say it's making the most of the people who have the knowledge within your organization. I think if you think about it on a smaller scale that we have ten hospitals and even though we were leading to standardized things at a at a trust level, we had to really understand where the value came in of the teams on the ground within um, within the hospitals themselves, so if they are small, it, it was understanding that you might have um, an operational director who really understands um, what the ins and outs are and the workings of that organisation, and getting those teams involved because I think it, it's just making the most of of the the um, the knowledge of those key people across the trust. And I think when you have when it's something that you know has to go forward, and it's something that um, is happening across um, all organisations. We know that there's going to have to be an ask on people to help get this across the line. I think sometimes, so just really making the most of of your teams that are already there. And I think. Um, although from our perspective we did bring in a lot of comms and resource support there is also um on in some of those hospitals we've got people who were already um whether they were working in hr or they were supporting communications we we brought them on board to help us get those messages out there and i think that's just if it was on a smaller scale they're probably the kind of people that you would use whether you have um, local communication support whether they're working within hr so they really know the channels to get to your different key stakeholders whether that's the admin and clerical staff, your nursing staff, just making the most of those. And it's what we did anyway, even though we had bigger resource because we were bigger, um, we still really had to utilise um, the different um, the different staff group leads to make sure that our messages were getting out there. I think nothing is better than a strong cascade network and understanding that local teams know their staff anyway and how to reach them. So um, I wouldn't worry if you don't feel like you've got too much communications resource. I think where you can garner support for um, getting some nuance on messages or a little bit of support on drafting a comms plan is where it would be most beneficial. But I think we've always recognized that if you're sitting within a corporate system over here, you don't always know the best way to tap into your local teams and understand what they need. So I think smaller organizations, you're already probably really well aware of your channels and and what your staff respond to. So um I think you I just build on the that kind of knowledge that you already have. I think um there's always going to be opportunities to to reach your staff on things that you've already even got planned in, making the most of your established meetings, channels, um different engagement sessions that you might already be looking at and I think we've tried to develop things that our staff could use on those levels knowing that they already do handover huddles and safety huddles and things like that where they can get across messages we just had the opportunity to to help them do that in a in maybe more of a streamlined way, giving them some briefings, giving them some slides, giving them different handouts, things like that. But I think, yeah, I think there's um there's a lot to be said for that strong network that's already there and how well they can support and they already have that knowledge.
0: Yeah, that that that's really helpful. And I, I think um and just to kind of what um while I remember, so we do we the national team we did put together um a, a, a small resource, I guess comms resource for organizations which had you know, um, it has a it has an animation that people can use um, to really summarize the complexity of PEF in about four minutes. Um, and some of the images from that am- animation we've kind of made available for people to use in kind of any comms material, so that they can. It's kind of a consistent, you know, a graphic almost throughout. Um, and um, and we we also put together just a slide deck with um, various blurbs about PEF in different word counts if that makes sense so a longer word count smaller so we do have that available and I can pop that in the description and so people have links to it I guess to try and help with that kind of consistent Mm. messaging um, we we may need to kind of go and update it, I guess, now as we kind of move closer yeah. to transition because the messages will will change slightly. But we do have that.
2: Exactly. That's as a great. Resource. And I think that is very much an approach that we took. And I think there is that it, it does um, grow over time and it adapts over time, like you say, and it, it became something that we we gave to um gave to sites and gave to our hospital leadership teams on quite a regular basis with there's always going to be a standard key message kind of pack that you have. But as you move into different phases of the program, things are going to change and where your um, different campaign activity might take place. So just for us in terms of um, the high VPR, we had some really key um, distinct phases of activity that we supported with from a communications perspective, whether that was recruitment for a team to get this across the line but then also building advocacy was a massive one trying to build subject matter experts and get that staff involvement so that they could then act as our advocates going forward Um, and then moving on to like almost a year to go and training activities um, and then moving up to go live so as those things came along we realized that we had to increase communications give people a little bit more to go on in terms of what they need to share and then really understanding um and like you were saying earlier around frontline staff and different layers of staff that they might need that communication in a different way um and I think again like talking about smaller organizations they'll understand their channels and they'll understand how staff um, engage with different messages and for us, we just, you really learn that you might have the most effective messaging, but if no one's reading their emails or no one's checking the internet, it's just being wasted. And I mm-hmm. think what you we have to do is like as much from a, a central point of view of giving people the key messages and what they need, it's understanding they might need a mix of digital, a mix of hard copy printable materials and a mix of face to face engagement. Um, and then that way that for us, even though we're promoting a digital program, moving away, moving to a digital way, of working or a new system is always going to take time. And I think it's important to realize that a digital channel might not always be your best route to get your message out. Um, so just like you were saying there, there's we did the same of creating videos, short blogs, animations, things that would show that kind of thing, but not just putting it. In an email or putting it on a website but then saying asking or creating um, engagement opportunities where people could come along or come to a teams meeting and we'd open it with that and we'd say we want to show you a quick um, a quick animation or a quick overview just to make sure that people were seeing it and engaging with it and then we could have a bit of a q and a session around it as well so i think um having all of that in the background making sure you're generating those messages but your channels are just as important as your content as well in that aspect
0: yeah that, that that's really i, I was it touches on a question i was going to ask actually which i think you've already answered but in um when when we want to engage with frontline staff who may not have a direct link to p per se um, but we want to make them aware that the organization is going through this massive change and how we kind of go about improvement following patient safety incidents it seems like a a multi-pronged approach you know potentially yeah. through you know you were saying these teams meetings where people can come and ask questions um and so on is that kind of what you would recommend yeah
2: i think so and i think just as well as that the conversational as well like um just word of mouth is really important so again building I think it is it's like that cascade network your channels but also building advocacy at an early stage I think strong advocates can really make a break a program and if you've got some key advocates especially for us we had lots of um advocates in terms of our chief clinical information officers and our wider digital NMAP teams, so nursing midwives AHPs digital nurses having the nurses and midwives who were extremely hard working in getting people on board in terms of understanding what this change meant and if it did mean something specific for them they could really put it in terms that that they were midwives themselves they understood what it would mean for their group of staff so having that advocacy and making sure that they were briefed, they were very much at the top of our list, just like um board <clears throat> board members, um, chief execs, thinking about the advocates that you know will have the ear of staff and making sure that they have key messages and briefings on a regular basis just meant that they could go out on a day-to-day and talk to their colleagues. And it was already internalizing that message without having to do um rely on digital forms of communication and giving them things that they just know that where the the notice boards are and putting things into a a, an easy poster that they could put on their board and people could see it on a day-to-day basis um I think yeah that that mixed communication and also just making um as much as you can of your advocates because I think building that early just really helped um the
1: program from our perspective great
0: and Stu I think you have a few questions for Vicky yeah
1: so I my first one is just building on um, the theme of uh, phases, because obviously um, there's a phased approach that's been re- recommended to organisations around the implementation of Surf, and there was obviously a phased approach that was used for your <coughs> Hive imp- implementation. Um, so, my question is how did you as a, a comms team uh, approach those phases, and specifically, um, how did you build your narrative as you went through those phases and perhaps shift the tone of your communication as you moved through them?
2: Sure, yeah, so yeah, you're completely right that um, we as a comms team really worked from the phases that were laid out within the programme timeline um, and they really were based on the different phases of EPIC's implementation process and each one of those phases has a real um, specific objective and outcome on where where um we want staff to be along that journey um and i think like just as an example of a couple of phases i think you really started with the project planning and then moving into workflow um, configuration. So, what that system actually means in terms of what it will do and the processes and then moving on to testing and training, which really does involve staff in in quite a detailed way. So I think when you go through those phases, what we wanted to do as a comms team from an early point was build our strategy on that um, continuous um, growth of awareness and building understanding um, and really preparing staff for that transformation that was going to be needed and what that meant. Um, And I think it starts off as quite a gentle approach and it just has to it has to grow and sometimes it can get quite intense, especially when you get to um, something like training, which is going to take staff time to get used to. It's going to actually put some asks on staff and that's kind of where you were talking there, where your tone has to shift. But to get to that, that was almost a year and a half in. So you have that time to be building and preparing staff and, pretty much embedding um, the vision and principles and what that transformation will mean. And I think each of those phases had to come with a bit of a campaign plan around it. And that campaign, whether it was being um, that kind of like thriving with Hive or all the different areas that you need to know to get to the point that you want to do training and understanding why training is such a necessity and understanding what it means to embed this new process and this new system. Um, and I think that at each of those levels what it means is that comms never stands alone you're working really closely with what the program team are trying to um trying to develop and trying to deliver and bringing in um across the board, the different areas of the organization that can support this change. And your messages and your tone and your narrative kind of come from that, knowing that you have a transformation team, you have HR, you have um, the the nurses and the medical leads who can all help you understand what the, the onus and what the kind of what it means for me might be for each of those um, different phases for the different staff. And I think that you just have to build your narrative in kind of peaks and troughs of activity as you'll still always be having an upward progression of building awareness and understanding. But you will have peaks and troughs of activity where you know you're going to have to have some. Maybe it's more resource or just a bit more support on some key areas um, within these phases, because I think for us, this was over a two year period of getting to go live. Um, and within that we probably had about four real key parts where we knew we had to do big pushes to get people on board and that's where you have to start to think about face to face um, or for us it was face to face and then through the pandemic teams came in but making the most of engagement sessions Q&A sessions and really bringing in the right people who could answer those questions for staff um, just as a as an example, having Q&A sessions just with the program team might not always mean something to staff on the ground, but having their local um, their local nursing directors or um, having their local HCCIOs, so the chief clinical information officers, having matrons on board, people who could answer their questions that are relevant to them really helps. And I think where you know that there's going to be big shifts in um, what what it might mean for a role or a job. I think that's where it's really important to have support from um, HR and OD teams because they can answer questions. that, As a general comms team, you won't have those answers. You can help shape answers and you can help support in terms of putting them in a comms plan, knowing that you've got different levels of staff who are stakeholders who might need a specific um Com's approach or a response, but it's really important to make sure that from, I think from any program that you've got the right levels of support at that high level, whether that is your transformation team, it's whether it's H, HR or whether it's organizational development, because there's going to be key changes that are happening for staff that, um, that are bigger than um, a communications ask.
0: Just a, just a quick thing while you were talking, um... I was wondering if you had any thoughts, because I mean, ultimately, um, you know, these wide changes, these, you know, they're gonna affect how people work. Um, they they take time and effort to enable them to happen. Um, and although there is a lot of positivity around PCF, I think there is also this kind of sense of fatigue and how are we going to get, get it done? And is it actually going to work? And so there, how do you deal potentially with um those kinds of responses i guess when you're um when through through comms and trying to engage people who may not necessarily want to engage do you have any tips on that
2: yeah for us i think it is always hard and there's i think there's always going to be especially when i think doing this through the pandemic really showed that there was um there was a, a massive fatigue and i think from that it was it's trying to push the benefits to to staff and patients showing that we are doing this for the benefit of the patient in the long run and trying to make the most of that and I think for learning as well. It's showing any kind of learning through the pandemic. It really showed as an enabler for for Hive specifically, like having really quick access to data, having um, a streamlined approach to doing something, especially when there might be issues. It meant that um, it meant that we could build on something like that and really showcase why this was needed. Um, And I think what we tried to do as much as possible from the beginning was try and put an element of fun and involvement where we could. Um, and I think it's it can be quite hard because like you say, people are, are really busy and they do get fatigued with things, but you can only try to bring people on board as much as you can. And I think... Doing things that involve the staff and showcase why it's important to them is really important. And again, I think it goes back to that early thing that I said around advocacy and anything that we did with engagement, bringing on peers um, for those staff really helped. And I think we did walk arounds quite a lot, bringing in, say it was like a surgeon within that area. A lot of our HCCIOs who are um, consultants, surgeons, nurses. They know their staff. They were great to have around us. We're trying to hand out things, hand out nice goodie bags for people that had key information inside so that they knew what was happening. But it also um, its kind of strange how well people really just want a lanyard and a pen and a tote bag and that they could have it full of all the information that they needed to put up around their wards to do what they that they could to get the message out but then also have a conversation with some of their peers who knew a little bit more around the program and I think um, trying to get them board in that way was really helpful from our perspective and I think it can't just be a one-way conversation I think where that happens and there, there might be some pushback you just have to be open and honest in terms of putting out um, opportunities for staff to feedback. Um, whether that's through surveys and it might not be something that you want to hear because people don't want change, it's change is always really hard to get across, but you have to show willingness to listen to what the staff want and and take their their feedback on board. And I think having those kind of ongoing QA sessions where people can come along, and even if it's an opportunity for staff to vent their frustrations that things are changing and they might just be getting used to something else and there's lots going on like winter pressures and things like that, but you they have an opportunity to speak to the people who are implementing this. Um and I think they worked for us in terms of we we had them on an ongoing basis, these QA sessions, for quite a long time. And some were really popular and we put them out throughout the days. So like, but they're there and there's people there to listen if people want to come along. So I think just two-way engagement is one of the biggest um the biggest opportunities we could do to to try and raise spirits and raise um, awareness as well.
1: I think um, our implementation leaves a lot of food for thought personally Um, and and I think what you're saying really overlaps with what we talk about in improvement, you know, when you want to bring in a change, (laughs) a a big change about really sort of um, selling the why. You know, creating that dissatisfaction with the status quo, explaining the how relentless communication of the benefits. It all kind of aligns with the things that you've been saying. But I think, you know, our implementation leads will be thinking at at the moment, um, who are the stakeholders that that I need to engage with? And I think what you're saying will will give people a lot of food for thought because it, it does go so wide in terms of have I got a comms team? involved in this you know how we working with OD and and HR so there's there's lots Mm -hmm. to be thinking about isn't there
2: and I think in terms of stakeholders in that way I was saying a little bit earlier on about there's already knowledge there and channels that you'll have established especially externally as well about who you are Communicating with on a regular basis and making the most of the ongoing meetings and channels and briefings that you know are going out there to keep people on board and to keep people um, your stakeholders engaged um, and it goes the same way for internal and I think it is a lot. But to get it all set out at the beginning, and I mentioned earlier about having an early workshop just to go through and map your stakeholders, map maybe an owner for those stakeholders of who you think already has those connections, especially if you don't feel like you've got a team of people to sort this out on, on your behalf you you can already probably see where you've got some some key links to stakeholders that you can um, you can kind of utilise in that way. Um, And I just think that early stakeholder map along with an early strategy um, is probably going to be your best best approach.
0: Great. And I I, just thinking about stakeholders. we, we can't have. It's hard to have a PSEA conversation without talking about external stakeholders like coroners and so on. Um, they they play a kind of that they're, they're featured quite a lot. in the questions we get asked about PSEA, I was I don't know. You may not have um, engaged with kind of um, stakeholders such as the coroners and so on um, as part of your kind of EPR implementation. But do you have tips around external stakeholder? engagement
2: yeah well well from an early stage um for, from the program perspective and building up your program plan there was always going to be different tiers of stakeholders who were going to be affected by what um what we were implementing internally and whether that was neighboring trusts um into our hospital um whether that was councils mps different levels and again just making sure from that early stage that they knew what might affect them and how they were being considered um, and then what that ongoing process might look like. So for us knowing that um, different trusts might have a connection into us where they often do refer somebody into uh, into our services just meant that we needed to let them know what that meant in terms of Um, the patient record and what that might look like in terms of sharing information and just showing what is different and and how we're approaching that and how we're supporting that and I think again it's that early honesty and getting into their briefings and getting into communicating with them from an early stage and again we did very similar and it's still ongoing now and it, it doesn't stop I don't think once you've you've set something in motion, we're still very much um, engaging with primary care colleagues through as many different routes as we can to make sure that they understand what a new patient record means and supporting with any issues that they might be having. And there's a lot to be said for that ongoing, again, honesty and trying to show wherever you think that um, it might be a difficult approach or it it might be a different way of working. And I think um, just trying, again, it's that kind of honest approach where you can and being as open from the start and building them in from an early point of view and I think again we knew that when um when things were coming up that we should be getting again like a stakeholder map but a stakeholder plan of when you know when key meetings are taking place so that you can have someone from the program be there to give that update and again answer questions because we know that those questions can then build up like for GPs we've created a Um, an FAQ and a you said we did document and things that you can pull out of that to share just to show. And that might be really helpful for someone like coroners who need a little bit more extra detail where you have probably got external stakeholders who just kind of need to be kept up to date with what's happening. But then you've got really specific um, stakeholders who do need a bit more guidance, maybe something specific in terms of listening to their questions and giving some um, a bit more detailed documentation back to them. But again, starting from that beginning point of building them into your stakeholder map will um, be invaluable, I think.
0: That's that's really, really useful. This conversation is so interesting. And I think uh, I think it's going to be so useful. We're, we're running out of time. Um, but I know Stu, you had a couple of other questions. So I'll let you have the, the the last few questions for Vicky and then we will wrap up.
1: Thanks, Tracy. Well, one of them was around um, how you how you linked in with OD and HR, but I think we've 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 touched on that. Um, and then uh, again, sort of staying on the theme of of stakeholders, was there anything that you did specifically around working with patients and families?
2: So for my MFT, one of our sorry for um, Hive, one of our biggest outputs of that is a new patient portal called MyMFT, um, which is very specific for how patients do access their own data from from the trust. And we had from the beginning specific groups set up that established patient experience, patient safety. We had, um, these were part of our rapid decision groups, which I think we had probably about 130 rapid decision groups. To, to think about how to implement Hive in general, but one very specifically on patient experience overall that met weekly with dedicated people who came from um, EDI, information governance, patient experience, patient safety, um, nurse leads, all of these different people who could then go back to their patient groups and bring in information and take out our plans and say, would this work for you? Would this um, approach work for you taking out even branding and saying does this branding work for for patients? Does this help you understand what we're trying to do, even from an EDI perspective? And I think the the big thing with Hive was that they were trying to think from the beginning with these different rapid decision groups, stakeholders plus different key changes plus deliverables and who they affected and very much understanding that um, that one of the big key groups here was patients and there was a dedicated rapid decision group set for patients and making sure that we had representatives who went to patient groups and could involve them in that aspect. And I think for each um for each trust, for each organization, you're going to have established patient groups that you can go to um, and, and make the most of. And I think to again kind of get on their agendas if there are, are group meetings to say implementing this this is like putting together i think as you said earlier you've already done this for teams but putting together slide packs of key messages to give people to take out there and really explain what this change might mean for patients what the benefit is why it's um why it is an improvement um and what you want to uh, what you want to achieve with it and have that again that open conversation where they can ask questions and feedback what they think and i think that getting to grips with your organization's patient safety patient experience teams straight away to make sure that that that's always again from a group from a group communications perspective patients aren't the the main um stakeholder group that we communicate to because that is very much we want that to be the patient experience the patient safety who fully know what patients expect from their leaflets from their letters from from their engagement in that way and bringing in their expertise early and just making sure that you understand what groups are already set up and the best ways to tap into those groups is going to be really beneficial and I think that's why from that beginning point we invited all of those people to a rapid decision group to say you're the best people to help us reach patients and get their input um to, to what we're trying to develop and deliver externally.
1: Thanks that's a really useful answer and uh, again I think we're talking about um implementation of something completely different there's so mm. much crossover I think there's so yeah. much um, that you can learn from one and, and, and apply to the other.
0: Great well I, I, thanks um Stu for that, for that question it's a really important question and Vicky as well for for your for your response and we don't have any kind of um national comms specifically for patients um what we do have um so we as part of our engagement guidance which forms part of the PSERF content um there is a link to some um leaflets for patients who may have been involved in an incident and um to, to explain to them what happens next and so on and so these were devo- these were developed by a research program called learn together um, but i think just the the language that they view the way they've kind of described things like investigation and so on is is really useful so i, I can pop the link in um to that in the description I have to remember all the links I've, remember, I've promised to put in but I'll pop that in the in the description of the podcast so people can go there as, as I guess a as a source of how like because the language that we're using is going to be slightly different in how we're communicating with patients versus staff versus boards and so on and it be and I it, and it, it's really important to kind of adjust that I guess is it I mean I'm, 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 I'll ask you you're the expert is that yeah. what you, you know no,
2: definitely and I think there's you have to be so clear when it's patients. It could be anyone reading this as well, and especially if it's something that's up on a website or if you're going to be putting it out on social media that you want people to look at this. The same for us, like when we were leading up to the go live point of view and then after go live, things were very much specifically um, aimed at patients, letting them know that we've had this change. We've made a change across the um, across the trust. It was for patient benefit and safety. It was for improving our systems but also letting them know like what that change meant for them and giving them real clear um calls to action, especially with our our portal and saying that you can you can find an easier way to get to your information if you want to use the the new patient portal, but then also making sure they had a place to go for FAQs, easy um, leaflets, like you said, but making it really accessible. And um, again, we created some short little animations just for patients, just so they understood what the processes meant. And um, we now have like a dedicated area. I think it links straight through from our um homepage on the MFT homepage straight through to my MFT which is the full patient facing side of Hive um and just making it like you say is just having it really accessibly available and accessibly written as well because it could just be any patient who's looking at this so it has to be universal in that way I think
0: great all right well thanks very much i think we'll we'll wrap it up there um thank you so much Vicky for your time and your insights into the world of large scale comms and thank you Stu as well for coming along I know you're working much more closely with um, provider organizations so have their perspective and and brought some really great questions Um, so we'll leave the the podcast there Um, as usual if you're looking to find out more about PSERF the best starting point is to visit the PSERF page on the NHS England website which you can find by simply googling PSERF it'll take you right there Um, please do follow us on twitter at ptsafetynhs um, where we'll be where we post updates. And there's also a range of resources, including some of the ones that we've mentioned today, um, available on um, our the PSERF section of the NHS Patient Safety Future NHS workspace.